2022 SBC Pastors Conference in Anaheim, California, 12 pastors led us through Colossians verse by verse with the theme, We Proclaim Him. We also heard six homilies that dealt with topics such as problems pastors face, spiritual issues, mission involvement, evangelism, doctrinal fidelity, and practical church issues all of which were topics envisioned by the late M.E. Dodd, who founded the SBC Pastors Conference in 1935. Tune in and be encouraged as you make your way through Colossians and other practical messages from the 2022 Pastors Conference made possible in part by Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. you open up your Bibles today to the book of Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 12 through 14 today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. We'll get there in just a second. This passage speaks to what is, in my opinion, my opinion, one of the greatest issues facing our convention. And it's an issue that I believe that if we don't get right, we're going to see three things happen. Number one, we don't get this right, I think we're going to continue to further alienate a lost world that we are trying to reach with the gospel. Number two, we're going to further alienate ourselves as a convention from a younger generation of preachers that are looking at us and trying to find a plausible reason why they'd want to join us. And I think third thing that's going to happen if we don't get this right. We're going to further alienate ourselves from the blessing and the hand and the presence of Almighty God. And here's the issue we're facing that Colossians 3 addresses, and it's the issue of division. Division. I don't get on Twitter very often these days. It makes my blood pressure go up. But when I do, here's what I see. I see a convention that is divided. I see a convention that is as a whole, not necessarily marked by what we're supposed to be marked by, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We seem to be, as a whole, a convention marked by the fruits of the flesh, enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And make no mistake, there, there are times when lines need to be drawn in the sand, but the scripture makes itself crystal clear that no matter what we face as a convention, that we are always to engage each other in a Christ-like kind of way. And we're not doing that. And I'm not sure that the Lord is pleased before I go any further, I think it's important to remember the context of the book of Colossians. What's it, what's it talking about? One of the primary things that Paul is doing when he writes to church Colossians is he's concerned about false teaching that's infiltrated the church. He's concerned about doctrinal error that's worked its way in the church, and he's fighting against that. I think, a, don't turn there, but look, Colossians 2.8, this is a great summary verse of book of Colossians, in my opinion, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul said there's two things that's creeping into the church that we have to fight against. Number one is worldly philosophy. We say amen to that. The other thing that Paul says we got to fight against in the church is human tradition. And we say amen to that. He's, he warns us, sternly warns us, do not be taken captive by either of them. So the scripture could not be any clearer that we have to fight for doctrinal fidelity and theological accuracy. But in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, the Holy Spirit inspired word of our God tells us how we are to do that, how we're to do it. In this section of scripture, Paul exhorts us to fight against worldly philosophy. But then he tells us that as we do that, we are to never forget that we are to do all those things in a Christ-like, God-honoring, fruit-of-the-spirit-bearing kind of way. Let's read it together. Colossians 3, 12. Again, he's been speaking into this idea of not allowing doctrinal error to run rampant in the church. And then in verse 12, he sort of pauses and makes an interesting statement. In verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And in verse 14, he says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so Paul, again, is exhorting us to fight against doctrinal error. And he says, but as you do that, there's some things you need to put on. That phrase is a phrase that it's an allusion to clothing. It carries with it the idea of clothing yourselves in something. He says that as you strive against doctrinal error, as you pursue doctrinal purity in the church, you're to do that by clothing yourselves with kindness and a compassionate heart and humility, and meekness and patience. And he keeps going and he says, hey, if anybody has a complaint against one another, you, you forgive each other. Why do you forgive each other? Because Christ forgave you. And then he says one more thing that we're to clothe ourselves with as we fight for doctrinal purity. And this seemed to be pretty important to Paul because he said, above all, you clothe yourself in this one. Above all things, you clothe yourself in this. He said, above all, clothe yourself in love, in love. And followers of Christ, just to summarize, as followers of Christ, the scripture says that, yes, we strive for doctrinal purity, but as we do it, we clothe ourselves in kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love. Let me ask you a question, everybody. Does that describe you? Does it describe you? Does it describe your social media interaction? 
Does it describe your engagement with people you disagree with theologically? Does it describe your engagement with people that you have differing political views or view on race, kindness, meekness, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love? Does that describe you? Here's why I'm asking this question. Because my time as a pastor is 27 years this year. Here's been my experience. Hands down, the most loving, kind, patient, meek, tender-hearted, forgiving people I've ever met in my life have been in the local church. And at the very same time, some of the meanest, most condescending, unforgiving people I've ever met in my life have been in the context of the local church. If you're a pastor, can you say amen? And I'm pretty sure that's not a good thing. Because Jesus, when he was describing us, when he was describing the church, and he, he said, there's going to be this one thing. There's going to be one thing that people can look at and see in us. And when they see this one thing, they're going to know that we've been transformed by the love of Almighty God. There's going to be this thing that people can look at and go, oh, yeah, you belong to Jesus. Do you remember what it is? In John 13, 35, Jesus tells us. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All right, so what, I, what Jesus, not me, but what Jesus Christ just told us is that the one thing that would define us, the one thing that would characterize us as his disciples is our love for one another. That's what would define us is our love. And, and if that's true, and it is, then I think Satan must be overjoyed at the state of our convention right now. Because we're characterized by a lot of things, friends, but love for our, each other is not one of them. I have a son that's 21. One of his longtime friends from when, when uh, we were in Austin was at the house the other day. The young man is a non-believer, completely unchurched. And I just, I, I asked him the other day, just kind of out of the blue, I was just curious what he'd say. This kid is unchurched. He's from Austin, liberal pagan city of Austin. I asked him, I said, hey man, have you ever heard of the Southern Baptist Convention? And he kind of thought for a second, he goes, oh yeah, aren't y'all the group that fights with each other all the time. That's all he knew about us. Unchurched kid from a lost city. And the one thing he knew about us that characterized us was not our love. Like Jesus said it ought to be, but it was our fighting. We've become a convention that in the process of doing the very necessary thing, of fighting for doctrinal purity and, and fighting for the doctrine of Christ, that we've stopped looking like Christ. <laughs> we've become a convention that in the process of fighting not to be overcome by worldly philosophy, that we've started to look just like the world. Guys, let that sink in. Church, let that sink in. We are not characterized by the one thing Jesus said we would be characterized by. And that's love for one another. And all the while we wring our hands that baptisms are down. 
We, we decry the fact that attendance is dropping and salvations are plummeting. And have, have you ever thought for one second that maybe one of the reasons that's happening is that people out there are looking at the way we treat one another in here and saying, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Oh man, but we're good at justifying being jerks to one another, aren't we? We're good at it. Good at justifying. We say things like, hey, well, Jesus knocked over the tables in the temple because of corrupt religious leaders. And well, yeah, he did. That was a good thing. We need to do that. Or we, we look at the church at Nicolaitans and Nicolaitans, Revelation 2, where Jesus hated what they were doing. And you think, well, what in the world was this church doing that Jesus said he hated their deeds? And then you find out that this was a church that in an effort to reach the culture, they bent so far to the culture that they stopped being salt and light in the culture. And Jesus said, I hate that. And so we got to make sure we're not like the Nicolaitans, and that's a good thing. But did you know that there's something else the scripture says the Lord hates? It's in Proverbs 6. I'll read it to you. Proverbs 6, 16. There's six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, <coughs> false witness who breathes out lies. And watch this. And it says, and one who sows discord among brothers. Scripture says that if you're sowing seeds of discord among brothers, that God hates it. That's strong language. Hey, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that God said he hates that? That when two brothers in Christ are sowing seeds of discord between the two of them, why does God hate that? And I think here's the answer. Because if, I, if our love for one another is meant to show a lost world what the love of Almighty God looks like, what does our infighting and division show a lost world about Almighty God? not good. There's something else we need to consider about the importance of loving one another. And scripture in many places says that our love for one another is one of the primary evidences of our salvation for crying out loud in first Peter 1 22. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. From a pure heart, verse 23, he says, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Here's what Peter just said. The reason that you and I are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with a sincere, never ending love is because we have been born again. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I looked it up and that phrase, you have been born again. Unless I read it wrong is the present tense of the participle. Here's what that means. That means something that has happened in your past that has ongoing inevitable results. And so the implication of this text here, Peter is not saying that, hey, since you were born again, you, you should love your brothers. He's not saying since you were born again, you ought to consider maybe most of the time loving your brothers. He's saying that since you have been born again, the inevitable result is that you will 
love your brothers. And so if you're a person that is refusing to love your brothers and your sisters because of some disagreement, then Peter would say, you need to evaluate whether or not you've been born again. By the way, John, John, the disciple gives the same litmus test in first John two, nine. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That's a haunting verse. There's going to be people that think they're in the light. There's going to be people that say they're in the light. But John says they can say they're in the light all day long, but if they hate their brother, they're not in the light. They're still walking in darkness. So here's a question for you guys. Why is love such an accurate litmus test for our salvation? Why is love? And I, I think the answer is because love is maybe the only evidence of your salvation that you can't fake. It may be the only one you can't fake because there's lots of people in the church that look at their great doctrine as evidence of their salvation. But it's entirely possible for you to have great doctrine and not be saved. You know how I know that? Because Satan's got great doctrine. He confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. He believes he was risen from the dead. He ain't saved. A lot of people in the church look at their morality and think they're saved. But you know who else looks at their morality and thinks they're saved? You know who else is really moral people? Mormons. They're not believers. A lot of people in the church look at their good works as evidence of their salvation, but you know who else has good works? Lost people. They give money to the poor. They fight for justice. They do all that stuff. They're no more saved than the man in the moon. They do not know the Lord, but loving people that you disagree with, loving people that hate you, loving people that have different political views and social views and cultural views and racial views, love, that is different. That is different. And so the reason that over and over and over again, the scripture says that love might be the most accurate test of your salvation is it simply cannot be faked. It's too hard. You simply won't do it unless you have been born again, unless you've been transformed by the love of almighty God. And that's exactly why the apostle Paul said in first Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Over and over and over again, the scripture points to our love for one another, our enemies in the church, outside the church, people that disagree with us, the hard stuff, love as the evidence of our salvation. And I would imagine, everybody check this out, I would imagine that every single solitary person in this convention would raise their hand and say that they're saved. They would say that they're born again. Then why in the world are we not known by the one thing Jesus said we would be known by? I, 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 don't, I can't give a good answer for that. Why not? Jesus said we would be. I'm almost done. And in light of the behavior of our convention in so many areas, I'm so thankful we have the book of Acts. 
so thankful we have the book of Acts because could you imagine if we didn't have the book of Acts and, and the world was forced to look at the 21st century Southern Baptist Convention to get a look at what the church was supposed to be like? What, what if the world was forced to look at the 21st century Southern Baptist Convention and it was by watching us, they, got a, they had to get a picture of what the scripture said we ought to be doing. Instead of Acts 2.42 that says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers, the world would look at us and think that the scripture said, and they devoted themselves to the teaching of Fox News and to divisions and infighting and prayerlessness. Instead of Acts 2.47 where it says, and they were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The world would look at us and think that the scripture says, and they were praising themselves and they had no favor with anybody and day by day people were leaving the church. I'm so thankful we have the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus defined what a real Christian would look like because if we didn't have the Sermon on the Mount and the world was supposed to look at us, 21st century Southern Baptist Convention, to see what a real Christian was supposed to look like instead of Matthew 5, 3, where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They would look at us and think the scripture said, blessed are the proud and arrogant for they will inherit the kingdom of religion. Instead of Matthew 5, 5, where it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the world would look at us and think that the scripture said, blessed are the power hungry, for they will inherit the Southern Baptist Convention. Thankful we have Matthew 5, 9, where it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, because if the world were to look at us, they'd be forced to think that the scripture says, blessed are the culture warriors, for they will be called sons of the Republican Party. There is a reason that the New Testament church turned the world upside down, because they didn't just talk about what the scripture says, they actually lived out a real picture of it. And if we don't change course, we will never ever see the kind of growth and the kind of power that the first century church did. I'm done with this. How do we move forward? How do we move forward? This is it. What if we became a convention of churches? And this is crazy, y'all. Put your seatbelt on. You ready for this? What if we became a convention of churches that was known for biblical faithfulness and tenderheartedness? What if, like, hold on, hold on, check this out. What if, this is nuts, this is radical stuff here, hold on. What if we became a convention of churches that was absolutely positively known for theological accuracy and kindness? What, what if, what if, this is nuts, what if we became a convention of churches that is known all over the world for its love of mission and its love for one another? actually, actually, actually live that out and turning the world upside down would not be something that we hear about or read about or talk about, but it might actually be, be something that the Lord chooses to do.
through us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this room. It'll be filled over the next few days. Father, I ask you that your Holy Spirit would pour out on this place. And one thing I ask above all, that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted here and in this convention, and that we might come back to the people you've called us to be. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.